episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. For $75 off your first order, visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello. This week, we're joined by Eric Satz, the founder and CEO of Alto IRA, to discuss alternative investing in your retirement accounts. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Bro, picture, if you will, a millennial man about town. He's wearing a buttoned-up shirt, a pair of chinos, and casual loafers, sans socks. And that final piece to finish off his outfit, a fleece Patagonia vest with his employer's, probably a financial firm, logo (laughs) embroidered on it. So there's nothing new about the buttoned-up shirt and chinos, but the vest, the Patagonia vest is the thing. It's such a ubiquitous piece of clothing for men in business and finance that the Instagram account Midtown Uniform was created, it has over 100,000 followers, to make fun of the herds of Brads and Chads roaming the sidewalks, (laughs) hunting for Starbucks and sweet stocks. It's a pretty funny account. So it's not just a uniform for millennial men on the go. Men of any age in business and finance wear these vests embroidered with their corporate logo. Again, probably says J.P. Morgan or some other little-known hedge fund. But why a vest? And why is it everywhere? Have you heard about the vest? I've heard about the vest, and I know about the vest. I don't know where why, it came from. the why for the vest, because I personally don't wear such a thing. Well, like with most bad things, we can blame 2008 <laughs> and millennials. So, apparently, the Midtown uniform, it came into fashion uh, during 2008 when people who worked on Wall Street were suddenly not getting awesome bonuses. And instead, like any other industry that can't pay with more money, they tried to satisfy employees in another easy, cheap way by letting them kind of dress down a little bit. So, the traditional sports coats and wool slacks became vests and chinos. And thus, the cult of the Patagonia vest was born. But gasp! Oh no! Bad news for bros everywhere! This last week, Wall Street Journal reported that and this was the headline, Patagonia triggers a market panic over new rules over its power vests. What? You're making a face at me. I can imagine. You did? Okay. So, what happened is Patagonia, a company that is known for its environmental responsibility, announced that it won't let companies custom brand their vests, basically embroider their logos on and buy tons of them for their employees, unless the firm is mission-driven and prioritizes the planet. So, the Wall Street Journal reports that Patagonia's new rule surfaced when financial communications firm Vested placed an order for vests with the name of a private equity firm, um, which was a vested client. The request was denied, which made got vested by surprise, and then they complained about it on Twitter. So yes, a company named Vested was denied <laughs> vests. Uh, one certified Patagonia, Patagonia seller said the decision was not meant to leave any bros out in the cold. However, being a mission-driven organization that's nice to the environment, means that oil companies, mine operators, and other outfits deemed ecologically damaging are going to have to find another way to stay warm in iffy spring weather. So, obviously, the B2B business for Patagonia is probably not huge. 
But does a purpose-driven decision impact your business? So I thought I would look back on a recent one. Well, actually, not not so recent one. This one has enough time to play out. Let's look back at the purpose-led decision that received a ton of criticism in 2014 when CVS decided to stop selling tobacco products. Oh. Do you know how, how it all shook out? I don't know. Well, guess what? I'm going to tell you. I can't wait. So, at the time, tobacco products accounted for $2 billion in sales at CVS. It's out of $139 billion, but still, I mean, that's, that's a decent chunk of change. So, they banned tobacco, and what happened? Well, a lot for the greater good. AdAge reported that CVS found that 40% more influencers saw it as a leader in helping to improve overall health. Um, in 2015, after they basically made the ban, uh, the company was listed as one of the most innovative and admired in various publications. And more than 500,000 people visited CVS's smoking cessation hub, oh. which I guess was like a website, and 26,000 smokers sought advice from its pharmacy on quitting. In addition, cigarette sales dropped by 1%, or 95 million packs, in 13 states in the eight months after um, the tobacco they took tobacco off the shelves. Um, and that was only in the states where um, CBS had a, a, a large amount of the market share. So, what about the sweet, sweet Benjamins for CBS? What was the impact there? While prescription sales continued to rise, general merchandise sales tumbled 8% on a same store basis mm-hmm. after the ban. But the stock actually rose from 2014, peaking in mid 2015. But it's been on the decline ever since. And that's probably Amazon's fault. I mean, if you can't blame 2008 or millennials, then you have to blame Amazon, right? Yes, I think so. So, CVS is kind of a muddy example, uh, considering that a lot of factors impact a company's growth. But then again, the general research on whether being purpose driven and making purpose driven decisions has a positive or negative impact on your business. All of the research there is sort of muddy. I mean, we know that being purpose driven has a few benefits. If your employees find the purpose motivating, they're going to work harder. Yep. And if your customers find that purpose motivating, they're going to shop harder, I guess you could say. And probably be willing to play a little bit more. Yeah. And so those are good things, of course. Uh, but there are a ton of factors, not least of all how um, their return on invested capital. Looks, that's apparently a very big deal. <laughs> so, of course, that's going to hit your bottom line and long term success. I talked to John Rotanti here at The Fool. Yep. Uh, and he he is heading up a new part of Fool.com to focus on ESG investing, which, of course, stands for environmental, social, and governance. And so I asked him to send me some research on whether being a purpose driven company. It's is positive for your bottom line, uh, and so he gave me a ton of research, including a 2015 Harvard Business School study that found that uh, it was of more than 2,300 firms, and they found that companies that commit to and invest in strategic sustainability efforts have higher risk-adjusted stock performance, sales growth, and margins, and that these sustainability activities drive. Business value, but there are also studies out there that say being purpose-driven really doesn't have that much of an impact on your financials, neither positive nor negative. So uh, George Serafime, he's a professor at Harvard Business School. He um, covers ESG investing a lot, and he said, even if you do not believe that ESG factors will improve your performance, I don't see any recent evidence that integrating material information about ESG will hurt performance. So. Patagonia, go ahead and decide which bros are worthy enough to don your vests. But more importantly, keep making great investments 
in the business to create the must-have gear for I'm so bad at dad jokes for the most purpose-driven businessy people who business in the future. And that bro is not a conclusive what's up, but that's kind of what's up. I will say that Vanguard just announced that they are going to launch an ESG fund this year. And Vanguard is not known as a company to just jump on a trend willy-nilly. So I think it's very encouraging for the prospects of ESG investments that they're going to launch a fund. Do you invest that way at all? I don't, but John and Alice Lomax is also here. They're they're very active in it. We talk a lot about it on Slack. And every time I read it, I think, like, oh man, I should be doing more of that. Be more deliberate in your yeah. investing and support invest in the world you want to live in kind That's of thing. Right. There That's you right. go. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Molecule. Molecule is reimagining the future of clean air, starting with the air purifier. Molecule has introduced a breakthrough science that is finally capable of destroying air pollutants at a molecular level. Outdated HEPA filters collect larger pollutants, but smaller things like mold, viruses, bacteria, and volatile organic chemicals slip right through. You don't want to be breathing that, bro. Absolutely not. All which are a big deal to allergy and asthma sufferers. Molecule uses breakthrough science to break down these pollutants at a molecular level. The technology has been verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people, including many allergy sufferers here at The Fool, because we all suffer from allergies here in Virginia, especially oh like <laughs> nine months out of the year. Yeah. The molecule is not only effective, it also looks really cool. Pretty much every person who's borrowed the office molecule has ended up being like, yeah, I just bought one. Yeah. So it's very popular. If you suffer from asthma and allergies, Check it out. For $75 off your first order, visit molekule.com and enter the promo code FOOL75. That's molekule.com and promo code FOOL75. One in three U.S. households own at least one IRA. And if you add up the total amount of money in all those IRAs, you get approximately $9 trillion, according to the Investment Company Institute. The overwhelming majority of that money is invested in cash, bonds, or stocks, or funds that invest in cash, bonds, or stocks. But did you know that you could invest in other things? Venture capital, private equity, direct loans, even. And here to explain why and how you would consider such investments is Eric Satz, the founder and CEO of Alto IRA. Eric, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Let's start with hearing your story a little bit. How did you get into the IRA biz? So, initially, I got in because I had this problem. I was trying to use my IRA savings to invest in a portfolio company of a venture capital firm that I am a, a partner in. And to make what can be a really long story short, was I ended up having to figure out how to do this on my own. And then when I was done, uh, it, it sort of uh, became readily apparent that this was not easily accessible for most people. And yet I have this strong feeling that most people ought to be adding what we refer to as alternative assets to their investment portfolio so that they are better prepared for retirement. So when I initially started, it was all about solving a problem for myself. But now that I'm a few years into it, it's more about addressing the retirement problem that the American people face. I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that they can invest in real estate and venture capital and their IRA. So uh, 
But there actually aren't that many rules. The, the, the types of things that the IRS says you can't invest on, there's a pretty short list. It's uh, collectibles, antiques, um, most but not all types of coins, most but not all types of options. But otherwise, you actually have a lot of freedom. And I think part of the reason that people don't know about it is because the typical big-name IRA providers don't allow you to do these things, the vanguards and fidelities of the world. So you really did have to go out and find someone who would specially allow you to do this. And it sounds to me like your experience with doing that wasn't very satisfactory. Uh, that's a polite way of saying <laughs> it. Yeah, no, so, so you're exactly correct. In terms of prohibited transactions, there are actually very few things that you can't do, collectibles being sort of the largest category. Although the industry is actually working now on a way to allow you to invest in collectibles by securitizing the opportunity. And there are a couple of companies out there that are doing that. In the art world, there's Masterworks. Uh, in the antique car world, there's Rally Road. Um, but, but to your point about the larger players, the Fidelity, Schwab's, TDs of the world, th there's good reason why they don't. Uh, allow their investors to participate in alternative assets. The the first is that they have a um, an investment committee structure where they say, here's the list of public company stocks and bonds that you as an investor are allowed to choose from. And they do that for two reasons. One, because they have a fiduciary relationship uh, for the most part with their customers. And they don't want the liability or responsibility associated with someone who, who, who makes an otherwise illiquid investment. And, and more times than not, illiquid investments uh, do have an opportunity to result in a negative return. And I'm not really talking about real estate in this case or even later stage private equity. I'm talking about earlier stage venture capital, which is what a lot of people associate with when they're thinking about alternative assets. And so the larger broker dealers don't want that association, responsibility, liability. The other thing is that it's not a, an easily managed task to, for for each of those uh, for the customers of each of those platforms to say, hey, I'd like to invest in company X, and have the investment committees of those uh, large broker dealers try and assess company X, uh, nearly impossible. And so the the self what, what historically has been referred to as the self directed IRA industry really was created back in the mid seventies when ERISA was created. And the idea is to give the individual investor the ability to own their own investment decision-making and to take agency for their future retirement. Right. And you just mentioned ERISA. That's the uh, Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, which gave rise to IRAs. Correct. Um, and you use the term self-directed IRA, which I always thought was a misnomer because most people are making their own decisions with their IRAs. But that is a specific term in terms of it's basically an IRA that allows you a lot more freedom in what to invest in. That, that, that's exactly correct. And uh, just, just to what, – what I like to say is it's, it's a little bit like saying natural food, right? <laughs> <laughs> which means it's somewhat meaningless. Uh, you can have a set – in fact, most of us have self-directed accounts at Fidelity Schwab TD, and I'm not picking on these companies. I actually think uh, uh, they do almost everything incredibly well. Um, 
But but what that means when you have this type of account, IRA account, at one of these broker-dealers, it just means you get to pick from the list that they tell you you get to pick from. And so that's why we actually refer to what Alto IRA is doing as the alternative IRA, meaning you are uh, you are given the power and agency to invest in alternative assets, otherwise known as non-publicly traded stocks, bond securities. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, why you would bother doing that. Why do you think that people should consider putting at least a portion of their portfolio in these types of assets? So you just nailed it, by the way, with a portion, okay? We're not, we're not in any way suggesting that anybody should go out and bet the ranch. Uh, as with any sort of investment approach, we, be, we believe in a diversified portfolio approach, and we believe that the percentage of your total portfolio that you allocate to alternative assets should also be diversified. In 2015, the National Institute of Retirement did a, did a study uh, or, or survey, the result of which was that 86% of Americans think that we have a retirement crisis coming. Um, in addition, it found that uh, on a projected basis that by 2050, there were, if nothing changes, assuming status quo, that we will have roughly 25 million uh, retirees either in poverty or near poverty. So there's an asset mismatch when we think about retirement savings and retirement investments. So the mismatch is that when you invest with uh, the the major broker-dealers, all of those assets have um, a, a liquidity requirement associated with them. And that's because in America, unlike almost any other place in the world, we're actually allowed to withdraw our retirement savings. Now, we pay a penalty if we do it, but if we actually look at what typically happens, most people have to dig into their retirement savings before they retire, right? So that you, you require liquidity, which means you don't get the premium typically associated with longer-term illiquid assets, Right? So we have this mismatch. We're taking long-term savings and we're investing it in short-term assets for the most part. So if you include a percentage of your portfolio in the illiquid alternative asset space that does tend to carry a, uh, let's just call it illiquidity premium, you should be able to boost your overall portfolio return by two to three points, which is a big number over a lifetime. Right. And then a lot of the research is done, if people want to read more about that, it's done by Roger Ibbotson. And you know, we've heard for years about the value premium and the small cap premium, and then came the liquidity premium. Um, so that definitely does show up in the academic literature, for sure. Um, I would say one of the flip side of that, though, is obviously some people are either close to retirement, in retirement, they have to look at required minimum distributions. Are some of these options that are available more liquid than others that than others that people who are closer to retirement should consider? Yeah, great question. So uh, I think as you get closer to retirement and you're thinking about alternative assets, you're really thinking about current pay assets, uh, which include things like real estate. Uh, at least you hope it's current pay, right? Right. So um, th- there, there's, th- there's no question that uh, this, the same way you want to uh, adjust any portfolio mix over time, 
you want to be thinking about a different set of alternative assets as you get closer to retirement age. There's no question. I think the big thing that has changed today versus uh, even five years ago uh, is, is the way that that every one of us at almost any monetary scale can now build a diversified portfolio of these assets. And, and the big thing that changed was the JOBS Act, Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. Uh, and, and there are a bunch of uh, titles within the JOBS Act. But the, the important one for us is Title III, which says that non-accredited investors can now participate in alternatives uh, when they couldn't before. Now, they have to participate on what's called a uh, Reg CF platform or regulation crowdfunding. But the fact of the matter is that when you participate in these platforms, you can participate with as little as $100 per investment, which means if all you have is $2,000, you could build a portfolio of 20 different assets. And, and we all know and the academics show that the more companies you have in your portfolio, the more diversified the portfolio – the better your chances of of, uh, perform, of outperforming uh, expected returns. People can come to Alto IRA with their own ideas, right? They can. So, and and then you all act as the custodian. Someone comes like I have this great real estate deal I want to invest in. Correct. But you also have investment platform partners that have some of these startup ideas. That's that's right. Right. So so. We, we made a couple of big changes to the industry based on uh, initially my own experience, but, but then as we added to the team and as we talked to more investors in the marketplace, just understanding where we could continue to add value. So the first thing was that uh, in the traditional workflow process, the investor was asked to do all the work, all the heavy lifting. So in my case, uh, and, and by the way, it took me about six weeks to execute my first transaction. And I, I've been making investments for 20-some-odd years. Uh, six weeks is way too long. And the company never would have waited for me uh, to be able to fund my investment if it hadn't been for the fact that I was actually on the board of the company. And so the first thing we did was we said, you know what? It's not enough to have a relationship with the investor. We need to have a relationship both with the investor and what we call the issuer. The issuer is the company that's receiving the money, okay, or, or the, uh, the company that's either selling the security or borrowing money. Um, and in some cases, an issuer can be an individual, by the way. So we said, you know what, we're going to ask people for the information that they're most likely to have, name, date of birth address, social security number, and we're going to ask the issuer for all the other information, uh, something called a corporate EIN, which is the employee identification number, which most people have never heard of. It's the corporate version of a social security number. Uh, We're going to ask them for their bank account information so we know where to send the money. We're going to ask them for their offering documents, which they have. If you ask someone, uh, uh, someone being an investor to go get the company's bylaws, or certificate of incorporation, you know, it's sort of, it's like, what? what? Why do I need that? And, you know, it's a really good question. And so we said, you know what, we're going to ask the issuer for this. And so we built this two-sided platform, which allows us to not only streamline the process, 
it allows us to serve as the central communication hub and workflow hub for both the investor and the issuer so we can make a transaction happen very quickly and with sort of little heartache on either party's part. So that 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 was really the first thing. The second thing was we took what was otherwise a people and paper burden process and we said we can do this with technology and we can do it in a scalable fashion. So if you think about what TurboTax did for people who wanted to, to self-file, right? I no longer had to read the tax code. I didn't have to find a, a CPA. I didn't have to go uh, to somebody else to help me figure out how to do my taxes. All I had to do was, uh, well, now to, it used to be you had to buy the software. Now all you do, all you do today is uh, log in, pay your $99, right? You follow the questions, you provide the answers, and poof, your taxes are done. And that's what we wanted to do for alternative IRA investing, and, and hof- hopefully we're there. Talk a little bit about the costs involved, because certainly when I first started writing about self-directed IRAs, and this is 10, 15 years ago, the costs were, were much higher than if you just open an account with whatever TD Ameritrade and pay your 10 bucks per commission. When we started Alto, I found that there were three fundamental issues or problems. The first was an existing education or knowledge gap. Meaning most people, and we talked about this at the beginning, most people don't know you can use the retirement savings to invest in alternative assets. That was number one. Number two was deal complexity. If you've never done this type of investing before, good luck trying to figure it out on your own where you're expected to do all the work within the sort of confines of a traditional self-directed IRA custodian. The third was cost. So... The average um, minimum fee for maintaining an account with a self-directed IRA custodian was $300. And then that, that number would increase based on your account size, which was mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling because every one of those custodial agreements says, we are not your advisor. We are not responsible for performance. We're simply an administrator. Well, I don't know a lot of administrators who get paid extra basis points because your account and your investing did well. So I was a bit offended. (laughs) So our account fee structure is as follows. There are three components to the fee structure. The first is an account opening fee. The second is a transaction fee. And the third is a recurring account fee. The, The account opening fee of $49 is meant to cover all of the fund transfer costs. Uh, as well as the Know Your Customer KYC and anti-money laundering AML uh, costs. The second is a transaction fee that's going to range from $9 to $99, depending on whether or not you're making an investment directly in a company or you're investing through one of our platform partners. And the idea is that the lower the average investment, the lower the average fee. On On the final piece, we actually give... Um, our customers the choice to opt into one of two tracks. Either we'll charge you based on your account size or we're going to charge you based on the number of assets you have in your account. And the idea here is to build the benefit into uh, the customer's favor, not to our favor. So the, the lower the account size, the lower your annual account fee. The whole idea is to make sure that you build a diversified portfolio and that our fee structure is not in any way inhibiting or, or disincentivizing you to do that. The, on, on the other side, for, for people who are investing larger amounts, 
uh, we don't want to disincentivize them either. So uh, they're going to get charged on a per asset per uh, per year basis. But in both cases, no matter which path you choose, we're never going to charge you more than four hundred ninety nine dollars for the year. And so we want to deliver, you know, better, faster, cheaper, right? That's what we're aiming for always. Um, you talked about diversification. I think that is important because when people think of when they could even go to some of these platforms and see the companies that are available, and the bottom line is most of them are startups, very young companies. So it's not necessarily the same thing as investing in a IBM or Procter and Gamble or something like that. So for someone who said like, "Boy, these things feel very risky to me," how do you respond to that? Yeah, so investing in startups is risky, which is why you don't bet on one. Right, you might as well go to Vegas. Right, you maybe have better chances. Right, they, they, so I, I also want to point out that not all investment platforms are early stage sort of focused. If you go to Yield Street, you can invest in real estate or uh, shipping containers or litigation finance. Um, if, if if you go to uh, ground floor, you've got commercial real estate, residential real estate. Uh, there. There are a whole lot of these companies, I mean, CrowdStreet, PeerStreet, R-Crowd, that are not early stage sort of venture capital uh, focused, right? So the the ones, given my background in venture capital, I tend to sort of gravitate towards AngelList and WeFunder and others, Republic. Uh, but that's that's not the sole approach. And and actually, to draw this back to the fee conversation, I don't want you to be penalized if you do a couple investments on WeFunder, a couple investments on AngelList, a couple investments on Ground Floor, and a couple investments, uh, you know, on Yield Street. Like, if you benefit by uh, account size, so that you can build that diversified portfolio, go ahead and do that. Like, and and that's what we want to enable. So um, here's the other thing I would say. We're looking for a change, and we are not far from Washington, D.C. Uh, there's, there's an amendment to the JOBS Act that already passed the House and uh, is currently stuck in the Senate. And the amendment does one really important thing. It allows non-accredited investors to participate in funds. Right now, non-accredited investors are not allowed to participate in funds, which is exactly wrong. Now, Congress made it this way <laughs> to, to begin with. Um, go figure. They got it backwards. All right. If what we want to do is allow for diversification, and if at their core, governmental uh, people are saying that non-accredited investors aren't smart enough to invest in uh, alternative assets, well, then I say, then let's give them the right uh, vehicle with which to achieve diversification, which is a fund, right? And so we need that. It's a bipartisan bill. I think it has bipartisan support. But as you all know, living uh, very close to Washington, D.C., that doesn't necessarily matter because it's not about that bill. It's not about that amendment. It's about somebody horse trading for something else. But we need this to go through if we're going to fix the retirement crisis or at least address the retirement crisis that's coming. We've talked a lot about um, types of investments, but let's close here, if you can, with maybe some specific investments that you know about that people have used 
your type of IRA form, maybe something that's offered on one of these platforms, but to give people a specific idea of what types of things are available. I'll start with some things that accredited investors are doing. So there are a couple companies, Forge Global, Equity Zen, are kind of rebuilding uh, the secondary trading capability. So we have uh, some accredited investors who are, are using their IRA accounts to purchase um, Uber, uh, SpaceX, uh, Slack, things like that, where the employees are looking for some liquidity ahead of an IPO. Right, and and so this is a vehicle for them to do that. Uh, at Yield Street, we see our customers participating in uh, shipping container deals, and I don't know the names of the the specific vehicles. Also, litigation finance, as well as um, some New York real estate. Right at at AngelList, um, a lot of the companies that many of us use from a technology standpoint. If you want to know where the hot company is, we can just look at uh, what our investors are investing in via AngelList. And so, you know, lots of different ways to do this. Um, and, and the other thing I would say is when you have a friend who you believe in uh, and, and you have a good sense for the problem they are attacking with their business – I'm not sure, you know, if you have those two metrics, you know, we like to say bet on the bet on the jockey, not on the horse. But if you like the horse too, go for it, right? Just don't bet at all. Right, right. Well, Eric, this is fascinating. I think a lot of people uh, have learned a lot here today. Obviously, if they want to learn more about your product, go to altoira.com. That's correct. Anything else you want people to know before we head on out? I'm just excited to be here, and I appreciate you both having me. Oh, right. yeah. thanks. Thanks for making the trip. That's the show. It's edited alternatively by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. You can also join our Facebook podcast group. It's fun. People oh, yeah. say things. Oh, yeah. And you can follow us on Twitter. Or not. Whatever. That's fine. Again, our email is answers <laughs> at fool.com. Drop us a line. Send us a question. Yay. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.